chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere in the pews around you. And 1 Corinthians 11 is on page 958 of that Bible. And we'll begin reading in verse 17 and read to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. Last week we started a new section in our study through this letter to the Corinthians. And the, this particular section deals with disorder. And uh, the text that we're going to look at focuses on disorder at the Lord's Supper. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what, was all, what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This, is the co this is cup is the co new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to these words, we recognize that they are not just the Apostle Paul's words. They are your words. They are your revelation to us. 
They carry your authority. They are true because you cannot lie. And they were written that we might know and understand your truth, that we might love and believe it and live according to it. And so we pray today by the work of your Spirit who inspired these words that that same Spirit would shed light on these words in our hearts that we might see them truly. We pray as a result of your word being proclaimed that you will be glorified, your church will be strengthened, Jesus Christ will be lifted high, and those who don't know him would come to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ordinance is a word that not many of us use on a routine basis. We typically think of the word ordinance in connection with local laws, like there's a town ordinance against skateboarding on the sidewalks. Um, But when we talk about an ordinance in church life, we're talking about something that was commanded by Jesus and explained by the apostles that pictures the gospel and testifies to our faith in Christ. And there are two such ordinances in the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, so baptism is a one-time ordinance. It is the first ordinance of the Christian life. When you become a Christian, you testify to that truth by being baptized, immersed in water, a testimony that your faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that, in fact, your old self was buried with Him, and you've been raised to walk in a new way of life. Now, some of you may have not heard that before, that this is what baptism is. It's not just some ritual that some people choose to go through and other people don't. Jesus actually commanded and said that part of what it actually means to be a disciple is to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you did not know that before today, you know now. It's not an optional add-on to the Christian life. It's part of what it means to obey the Lord. And if you have heard that before, and you do know it's a command, but you're still, it's not your preference. It's not what you would do. Hear that again. It is a command of the Lord. This is part of what it means to follow Jesus, that first ordinance. And then there is an ongoing ordinance, and that is the Lord's Supper. So that over and over again, through our Christian lives, together we eat the bread and drink the cup in order to remember the, the death of the Lord Jesus for us. Now, how we practice these ordinances matters. They're expressions of faith. They're not merely religious rituals. So we do them, actually, to honor the Lord, to obey the Lord for the Lord's sake. And it's this issue of how the Lord's Supper is being practiced that is at the heart of this text that we just read. And Paul is calling the Corinthians back from their unfaithfulness to faithfulness in the Lord's Supper so that they will celebrate the Lord's Supper in a way 
that's worthy of the Lord. That's what these three paragraphs actually teach us, that we ought to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a way that's worthy of the Lord. Now, how will they do that? What does Paul say? Well, there are three things, actually. And the first is they have to recognize what's wrong. Recognize what's wrong. You heard it right out of the gate. Paul has nothing good to say about the way the Corinthians are taking the Lord's Supper. If you look at the beginning of verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And then the end of that paragraph in verse 22, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. They've gone completely wrong, not because they aren't celebrating the Lord's Supper, but because of the way that they are celebrating the Lord's Supper. And as you heard it, you heard that this isn't just a little piece of a service where there's a small piece of bread and a cup in your hand. This is a full meal in which this Lord's Supper took place. Why a full meal? Well, probably because it was at a full meal, the Passover meal, that Jesus first gave instructions about how His disciples were to remember Him through the bread and through the cup. And so, what's wrong with the way that they're doing it? Well, they aren't remembering Jesus whatsoever. In fact, it's as if they've forgotten Him. Look at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That is really pointed. It's not just about the act of taking bread and taking a cup. He's saying the way that you're doing it, this isn't the Lord's Supper at all. Well, what has gone wrong? Well, I'll mention two things. First, they're divided from one another. They're divided from one another. Look at verses 18 and 19. In the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, he says these divisions may show you who's, gen, you know, who's genuine and who's not in verse 19, but that's actually no excuse for what's going on. It is wrong. He uses the word factions in 19, which is actually stronger than division. It means Division that's motivated by selfishness, motivated by arrogance, motivated by a sense of superiority over others. I mean, this is supposed to be a feast marked by love, but it's loveless. The church doesn't come together to divide. We come together for one unifying reason for God, to glorify God, to magnify God, to exalt God, to dwell on God and His glorious to glory, to hear the Word of God, to revel in the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, God is so great and so glorious and so awesome and so beautiful, we shouldn't be able to take our eyes off of Him. That's actually what makes this kind of division so repulsive. Because the Corinthians are setting aside this great God 
for the sake of me and my selfish ambition. The Corinthians' eyes are on themselves and not on the great God of glory. How much is that true this morning as men and women gather in places like this to worship the Lord? In how many pews are the eyes on me and what I think and what I want and how I feel and not on the great God of glory who draws us to Himself? This problem isn't limited to Corinth, is it? It's not limited to a particular place in time. This problem, time travels. And it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So when they come together, they're all divided. They've come the wrong way, but also they're despising one another. Look at verses 21 and 22. In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Now, Paul's not saying go get drunk in your own house. He's trying to say... You have completely forgotten why you've come together. And in the way you're coming together, you're despising one another. But the dividing line here isn't theological. It's sociological. It's economic. The dividing line is between the rich and the poor. Some are getting plenty at the meal, and some are left going hungry. Now, in the custom of that day, it, it was... It was fairly customary, if you were going to host a meal like this, that the more favored guests would be in the dining room, uh, which was called the triclinium. And you would come in, and there would be couches on the floor for you to uh, relax and eat and enjoy. But the lesser guests and the servants would be in another part of the house altogether, a kind of hallway with no furniture. The best food goes to the dining room, and the rest can go to them. It's like going to, it's like if you go to Thanksgiving dinner this year, and you walk in and you smell the turkey, and you smell the stuffing, and you smell the pumpkin pie, and your mouth is watering, right? And you see these beautiful wood tables around, the t- uh, around this just table that's just groaning with food. And then someone says, no, 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 this is not where you're at. And they take you to where you're going. You're in the garage on a picnic blanket eating kale chips. I don't care what you think of kale chips. That is no Thanksgiving dinner. I think people struggle to give thanks for kale chips. But that is going to have to be a subject for another day. But the fact of the matter is, is that's the kind of thing that's happening. The rich are in the dining room. The poor are on the garage floor. The stomachs of the rich are full of food and wine. The stomachs of the poor can be heard grumbling even after dinner is over. 
Well, what should the rich do? Well, 1 Timothy 6 says that the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. But they're not. They're despising God's church. They're looking down on the poor. They are humiliating their brothers and sisters. They're despising the church when God says the church is a family where everyone has a seat at the table. No one's relegated to the garage floor. No one is shut out, rich and poor, together at the same table because you have the same Lord. No favoritism. No partiality. No discrimination. Everyone has a place at the table. Now, friend, I wonder, as you look around our church family, I wonder if you have favorites. I don't mean are there people that you're particularly closer to as opposed to others. That kind of thing happens naturally, especially in a group of this size. But what I mean is, are there people you just shy away from? You say hi to them in the hallway, but I don't know that I'd spend a whole lot of time with them. And oh, you'll say, well, we don't have much in common. And so that's why. Or 1 Peter 4.9 project, you know, our effort to demonstrate intentional hospitality every August will come around and you're like, well, I probably won't invite them. I mean, we may not have a lot to talk about. And so you'll convince yourself of that. But, and from a worldly point of view, you're right. But from a biblical point of view, the most important things you have in common Christ, His grace, His love, His mercy, His Spirit. You see, the, the church shouldn't look like a middle school cafeteria with separate tables. And these people never eat with those people because these people are cooler better, higher up, more favored. Look, that's despicable in a middle school cafeteria, and it's even more despicable in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How bad is it in Corinth? Well, look at verse 17. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine if someone said that about Gray Road Baptist Church? What if the Lord himself said that about Gray Road Baptist Church? When you come together, it is not for the better. It is for the worse. That should make our souls shudder and want to do whatever it took to never have that said of us. Recognize what's wrong. Recognize the loveless division. Recognize the superiority in despising others. And then once you recognize what's wrong, then remember what's right. Paul describes the Lord's Supper as it should be, as it was received and as he has delivered it. Now, 
What we're going to read, this description of the Lord's Supper wasn't put in the Bible just so that we would read it every time we take the Lord's Supper, even though we typically read it every time we take the Lord's Supper. This description of the Lord's Supper was put here because of what's going on in Corinth, because it directly confronts and contrasts with what is happening at their table. But before we see how it contrasts, let's look at what the right way is. Okay, first, the the Lord's Supper remembers Jesus' death. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus takes bread and he says, This is my body. He does not say that because the bread somehow becomes his body transforms into his actual flesh. This is a doctrine called transubstantiation, and it is false. The bread that we eat does not become the very body of the Lord Jesus. It represents the body of the Lord Jesus. I mean, in other places, Jesus says, I am the door. This is imagery language. He says, I am the good shepherd. But he's a carpenter. It's imagery. And there he says, this is my body. We use language like this all the time. And so it would be very unusual in that first… No no disciple is sitting around that table in that upper room before Jesus dies, and when he holds up the bread and says, this is my body… No Jew is thinking, oh, I get to eat the flesh of another human being. They would never do that. It's forbidden by law. They see it the way we ought to see it, representing Him. The bread is a picture of His body, a body that's broken and sacrificed for us so that we eat it. And the way that our bodies rely on bread, our souls rely on His sacrifice. And then He takes the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, in the Old Testament, covenants were inaugurated through blood, through animal sacrifice. And the new covenant is also inaugurated with blood. But Jesus' blood is greater than all the blood of all the animals in the sacrificial system. Hebrews 10 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And the promise of the new covenant is, according to Jeremiah 31, 34, is I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jesus' blood is the only blood that is sufficient to forgive us of sin. Please hear that. There is no outweighing your bad with your good. There is no getting yourself right with God. There is no clawing your way back into favor. 
It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we are forgiven of sin. That's it. There's no forgiveness apart from that. And so we drink this cup, recognizing that our forgiveness, our clean slate before God, our right standing before the King of the universe is because of His blood, because of His death. So we eat this bread and drink this cup to remember Jesus' death. But this remembering is more than just mental recall. It's more than that. Growing up every holiday, my grandmother, Jojo, used to make boiled custard. That's how you have to say it if you're in Tennessee. It's not boiled. There is no boiling anything in Tennessee. And we don't even know what that means. It's bold custard. And I loved it. It was the best. I, wouldn't, I would just, I would pass on even picking up a spoon to eat it. I would just drink it. I would gulp it down. I ate my dinner just so I could get to the custard. Now, 12 years ago, my Jojo died. And one Christmas, I decided I was going to try to make boiled custard. So my Aunt Mary gave me the recipe, and she said, this is not easy, and it's probably going to take more than one try to get it right. So I said, okay, well, it's Christmas morning. All the paper is strewn throughout the living room, right? And children are away playing with various toys and whatnot. And I decide it's time. So I go into the kitchen and I go step by step through this recipe, which is my grandmother's recipe. So there's a lot of guesswork. There's a lot of until about here, a bit of this, and a little more time there, you know. And so I'm like, She's right. I could get this completely wrong. So I go through the whole process, finish it, cool it for several hours, and then I get it out. And I take a spoon, and I put it to my lips, and I begin to weep because I had gotten it right. Tasting that custard took me back to Jojo's kitchen. I could see her with her apron standing at the stove cooking. I could hear her saying my name in a way that nobody else in my life has ever said my name. I remembered her. That is how we remember Jesus' death. It is an experience of going back to the cross and with eyes of faith seeing His broken body, seeing His shed blood, and hearing Him say of us, Father, forgive them. It's being moved all over again by the old, old story of Jesus and His love. 
I mean, have you ever been moved by Jesus' death like that? Has it ever stirred your soul like that? When it does, don't ignore it. Don't wait a minute. Run to him. And friend, he will receive you. He will forgive you. He will save you if you will come to him. It may be early in your life and it may be late in your life, but it is not too late for you to run to Jesus and find forgiveness and find there's actually a seat at that table for you. The Lord's Supper remembers Jesus' death, but the Lord's Supper also proclaims Jesus' death. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Now that verb, proclaim, in the New Testament is a vocal activity. It is always talking about preaching the gospel, going about proclaiming the gospel. Paul says in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim. And in every place it's vocal except this one. Because eating the bread proclaims. Drinking the cup proclaims. It's like a collective visual sermon. You see, we don't have a drama ministry where people come up here and pretend to be one character or another. But every month we have this glorious drama in which we present the death of Jesus by eating the bread and drinking the cup. And for all who will see it with the right eyes, they will hear it. We say... Jesus died, and Jesus died for all who will come to him. That's what we say every time we take the bread and take the cup. The Lord's Supper remembers Jesus' death. The Lord's Supper proclaims Jesus' death, and the Lord's Supper anticipates Jesus' return. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. On September 11th, 2021, we all recognize the 20th anniversary of the horrendous terrorist attacks on our nation. There were documentaries that were made for it. Specials were aired about it. Uh, ceremonies were held. All, and all of us together were moved once again by that moment in our history when everything changed. The Lord's Supper is not like that. The Lord's Supper does look back, but it doesn't just look back to memorialize a death. The Lord's Supper also looks forward because the Savior whose body was broken and whose blood was shed and who was beaten with rods and crowned with thorns and rejected and tortured and executed and buried, rose from the dead. 
He conquered the grave. He appeared to his disciples. He ascended into heaven. And there he sits even now in glory at his Father's right hand. And one day he will return to judge the living and the dead and to put an end to sin and Satan forever and to punish evil and to safely bring home all who come to him in faith. We don't just eat and drink looking back at the source of our hope. We eat and drink looking forward to our hope. It is because of what happened in the past that we can have hope for the future. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Now, that's the right way. That's the right way. We remember Jesus' death. We proclaim Jesus' death. We anticipate His return. It's all about Jesus, you see, his love for the church, his death for those who trust in him, his selfless sacrifice. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it glorious? Now peek in the window at the Corinthian church. Selfish, loveless, divided, despicable. It's not the Lord's Supper that they're eating. There's no Jesus in what's going on there. You see, the very presentation of what's right rebukes what is wrong. Now, once we finish this study, we are actually going to eat and drink together. We're going to take this supper, but I wonder, friend, will you be eating the Lord's Supper? Will you eat with a heart that is at odds with others? Will you eat with a heart that looks down on others? Will you eat with a heart that sees yourself It's a little bit above because of the place that you have in the world, the place you have in the office, the the money you have in the bank, the intellect you have in your brain. Will we come together and yet be divided? Are we sitting here in the same place but not on the same page? Will you eat the Lord's Supper? That's the question we all must answer. We have to recognize what's wrong and remember what's right and then come back. Come back. Notice how Paul urges them to come back. He warns them and he calls them. First, he warns them. He says, celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that's not about the Lord is actually dangerous for you. Look at verse 27. Whoever then eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. A, A wrong approach to the Lord's Supper leaves us guilty before God. Look at verse 29. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks 
judgment on himself. Now, that phrase, discerning the body, is difficult, and uh, there is debate about it, but I, I take it to mean that we ought to discern the body of Christ represented in the bread. You see, discern is actually the word for distinguishing, to see what sets something apart. So, see that this bread is set apart from any other bread that you take. See that it means something that no other bread means, not because of its recipe, but because of the reality that it represents. The bread that we eat when we take the Lord's Supper is no ordinary bread, even if on the shelf it looks like ordinary bread. It's no ordinary bread because it is about the Lord Jesus, so it is distinguished. So he's warning us not to take this supper lightly. You'll eat and drink judgment on yourself. Well, what would that look like? Verse 30. This is stunning. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Temporal judgments can come. The Lord's discipline comes when we treat what is holy as ordinary, when we treat what is righteous as a mere ritual. Some in the Corinthian church are weak. Some of them are hooked up to chemotherapy. Some of them are in the ground. He's not saying all of that happens because of this sin at the Lord's Supper, but he's saying some of it is. The good news for the one who's trusting in Jesus is what he says in the second half of 32, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Trust me, you'd rather be disciplined by God than condemned by God. Even in all of the pain, it doesn't compare to the pain of eternal judgment. And these warnings are for us. That may sound very harsh about sick and dying, but here's the thing. This is, remember, this is not about a ritual. This is about Jesus Christ. To make light of a supper that remembers Him is to make light of Him. If you were to come in my office, you would find a printed picture in a frame of Jojo. If you were to take that picture out and rip it to shreds or just toss it on the floor like it was nothing, you're saying something about her. Not a piece of paper in a frame. Don't take lightly the, the Lord's Supper because you'd be taking Jesus lightly. And these warnings are for all of us. If you're not a Christian, that warning actually means you ought not to take these elements at all. At all. There is no meaning to the elements apart from faith. It doesn't gain ground with God for you to go through religious rituals. Don't take it whatsoever. And if you're a Christian, don't take it thoughtlessly. Don't take it because it's just what we do. Don't think that you can remember the Lord while being at odds with the Lord's people. 
So he warns them, but he also calls them. What does he call them to do? Basically two things. Examine yourself and judge yourself. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 31, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Now, in English, that's that's difficult because the word judged is actually two different Greek words. The first word judged, if we judged ourselves truly, is the same word as discern the body in verse 29. So there's something that ought to, as, as the bread is distinguished from all other bread, so the Christian ought to be distinguished in the way he or she lives, in the way he or she approaches the Lord's table. Think about Corinth, right? They love status. They want to be rich rather than poor. They want to be strong rather than weak. They want to be wise rather than foolish. Because you, but when you're a Christian, you see your status differently. In the world's eyes, my status may be exalted because of my position or, or because of my money or because of whatever, because of my education, but not in the church. Not in the church. Here, my status is the same as everybody else's. I'm a hopeless sinner saved by grace alone. And neither money, nor influence, nor education, nor position in, in society give me any advantage with God. The ground, as it were, is level at the foot of the cross. And so the Lord's table must have the same seat for everyone. Everyone in the dining room, no one in the garage. But it's only once we examine ourselves there, once we see that we come rightly, that we can actually come. And we need to be asking ourselves, do I actually believe this? Do I actually believe that my status is the same as everyone else's? Or do I think I've got a bit of an edge because of my education? I think I've got a bit of an edge because I've been reading more theology than all these other people. I think I've got an edge because I know, I know apologetics. I think I've got an edge because I've memorized a lot of the Bible. Once we think we've got an edge, we've lost the edge. We've lost what makes being a Christian so wonderful, so glorious. It is that we all come with the same sin to the same Savior, receiving the same forgiveness to come to the same table. So I have to ask myself, do I really believe that I come to the table just like everyone else, that I, I have nothing more and nothing less than everyone else at the table? Examine yourself. Judge yourself. And then come. And then it won't be rote. Then it'll be right. But what if you do fail the test? What if as you sit there and I say all of those things, you realize that some of that actually sneaks into your mind and you actually find yourself thinking that at some time or another that I've got an edge probably on this person or that person or surely my education gains me some advantage. Well, then I have good news. Because the Savior pictured in the supper will forgive you. Confess your sin to Him. 
He'll give you the grace needed to make things right with him and with others. I mean, he's the one that welcomed you to the table in the first place. You didn't earn your spot. It was given to you by grace. His mercy provide the meal. And so he can teach you and teach me to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a way that's worthy of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for the death of the Lord Jesus. How we thank you that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that the same Savior we all need is the same Savior we all have. And God, we pray that you would guard us against what's wrong. We pray that you would guard us against selfish division from one another, against arrogance, against senses of superiority over others for financial reasons or educational reasons or career reasons or any other reasons. Oh God, keep us from despising one another. And instead, help us to remember Jesus' death. Help help us so that the way in which we celebrate the Lord's Supper is worthy of the Lord. To remember Him and proclaim Him as we wait for Him to return. And now as we come to your table, give us grace to judge ourselves and examine ourselves that we might eat and drink in a manner worthy of our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Now we're going to take just a moment to do that, to prayerfully consider our own approach